Father, thank you so much for your great love and grace. Thank you that Jesus is indeed strong and kind. That when we feel lost, he's the one that will come and find us. He's the one that paid the price so we could be found. Because you, Lord, are good and faithful. And we are so grateful for that. I pray, my King, as we seek you in your word this evening, may we continue in an attitude of worship. Singing songs is a wonderful way to worship. But so is listening to your voice. And your word is you speaking to us. And so I pray that we would indeed listen. And that yours would be the voice that we would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we saw David make Solomon king. This was, of course, after David's other son, Adonijah, tried to take the throne for himself. Uh, It didn't work out well. Uh, Things are going to get worse for Adonijah this week. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So this week we're going to see David give his parting instructions to the new king, and we will see Solomon firmly established as the king of Israel. It actually says it twice in the chapter, once in verse 12, and then once again um, in verse 46. So the plan is only this chapter. Hopefully we are successful. So 1 Kings chapter 2 And verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So we're going to get another set of instructions from David in verses 5 through 9. But first, we're going to look at the positive instructions that David gave him. There's there's one more positive instruction in verse 7, but for the most part, the rest of David's parting instructions are, well, they're a little harsh. So first, David says, I'm going the way of all the earth. David knew he was dying, uh, but at this time, there was not a clear teaching on the resurrection. There was a belief in the afterlife. You remember when David... Uh, you know, got Bathsheba pregnant, and that the, the their first child died, then and then she had Solomon afterwards. Um, but their first child died, and when the child died, his servants were afraid, and he said, I know that he won't return to me, but all go to him. So David had some kind of uh, knowledge of the afterlife, that there was something eternal after this earthly life was over. And I I mean, it's mentioned in several places in the Psalms. Um, One of the Psalms, gosh, is it the one we're looking at a little bit later? Give me a second. I'm looking ahead. Nope, I'm thinking of something else. Never mind. Um, But there's several Psalms where God 
or, or the psalmist speaks of the fact that God will lead us into eternity. Now, we don't have that limitation. We, uh, you know, so you figure if David had, uh, maybe we exclude First and Second Samuel, or at least Second Samuel at this point. Um, but if David had everything up through First Samuel, you know, he had a good chunk of the word. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that David didn't have. Like we have the Gospels. <laughs> and we have verses like 2 Corinthians 5, 8, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, which says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And we have teaching and promises from, from our Savior, Jesus, about inheriting a kingdom and you know he's going away to prepare a place for us and he's going to come back and receive us to himself so that where he is we can be also i mean we have all these great and precious promises concerning eternity that david didn't have but i'm grateful that we have them because there is no way to get there but through jesus and there's no one else who can make such promises to us but god himself now i like this statement prove yourself a man I think, unfortunately, in our day and age, um, the definition of a man has become very confusing. Well, I mean, not only do you have people confused about gender in general, but you have people confused about the definition of a man. I'll give you an example. I, I was listening to uh, Jordan Peterson. You guys all know who Jordan Peterson is. Maybe a little bit. My wife doesn't know. Oh, you got to listen to some Jordan Peterson. Um, Jordan Peterson, uh, he was doing an interview where he basically said that men need to be capable of violence. Now, the person that was interviewing him uh, balked at this idea. He was very, oh, no, no, men shouldn't be capable of violence. Men shouldn't be violent at all. And, and he kind of reamed Jordan Peterson a little bit for his comment that men should be capable of violence. And, and Jordan Peterson looked back, he said, I didn't say that men should be violent. I said that men should be capable of violence. Men should be capable of defending their nation. Men should be capable of defending their family or of defending the innocent, right? And he goes, in order to do that, you have to be capable of violence. And he says, if a man's not capable of violence, then not being violent isn't really exercising self-control, right? If you can't do something, you don't have self-control if you don't do it, because you can't. And I really like that. I, I remember a pastor, Ken Graves, uh, he used to give, the, he used to talk about the Mr. Scale. I think, have I ever mentioned the Mr. Scale to you? I love the Mr. Scale. He said on one end is Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers was a man. Right? Through and through. Gentle, soft-spoken, but he was still a man. He goes, on the other end is Mr. T. And he said, the thing is, is in our society, they want every man to be like Mr. Rogers. Don't ever be like Mr. T. Then you'll get some people that say, well, what you really need to do is you need to fall somewhere in the middle. Right? You really don't want to go as far as Mr. T. I pity the fool. And you don't want to go as far the other way as Mr. Rogers. All right, let's tie our shoes and put on our sweater. And he said, when you study Jesus' life, you find that Jesus spent time at both ends. Yeah, 
there's a time to be somewhere in the middle. But when he went into the temple and they were, you know, uh, mistreating people and robbing people and lying to people. And he flipped over the tables and made a whip, uh, a whip out of cords and, and drove them out of the temple and said, my father's house will be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. Well, at that point, Jesus was on the Mr. T side. Now picture Jesus on the cross. We'll come back to that in a moment. How many times was Jesus on the other side, the Mr. Rogers side? Think of the woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? No no one's here. He goes, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That was very much a Mr. Rogers moment. And then on the cross, he showed both. Because on the cross, on one instance, you have the nails being driven through his wrists and through his feet and the cross going up and him hanging there naked and doing that for what? To save us, to protect, not even the innocent, but to protect us sinners from an eternal condemnation. That's the manliest thing any man has ever done. And at the same time, he looked at the people who were nailing him to the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. On the cross, both ends. I came across this verse. Okay, I googled it. But still, I was really curious if I could find a place in the Bible where we're told to be men. No offense, ladies. I'm talking to Grayson right now. And me. Here's the verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. It says, Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Now, if you were listening, you might say, but wait a second. It doesn't say anything about being a man. Well, that's because the New King James Version here, this is actually a poor translation. The phrase, be brave. In Greek, literally means act like a man. Is, is that are you in the is that the ESV says act like a man? Yeah. Better translation in the ESV. So what this verse should read is watch, stand fast or stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done with love. So there in that one statement we have both ends of the Mr. scale. Be a man, be strong. That's the Mr. T end. But let everything you do be done with love. That's the Mr. Rogers end. So what I'm not saying is that men are better than women. As a matter of fact, I am fully convinced that women are much better than men. I am. Not just because my wife and daughter are sitting here. If my son was sitting here, I'd say the same thing. If this was a room full of men at some kind of men's conference where the testosterone was flowing freely, I would still say the same thing. Women are better than men. So there you go, right? Everyone goes, oh, we need to be equal. No, women can do things that men cannot do. Women can do incredible things that men cannot do. And the things that women can do that the men cannot do, I am very happy that I cannot do because it looked like it hurt. And I don't want any part of it. But I think women are better than men. But men are called and created to do certain things that they are supposed to do. It doesn't mean that women can't do these things. It's just this is what men were created for. 
Men were created to protect the innocent. Men were created to care for the destitute. Men were created, they're even charged up in Ephesians chapter 5, to teach and raise their children. Now, don't get me wrong, women have an amazing role in raising their children. Uh, Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy. But it doesn't change that, that absentee fathers, it's a huge problem in our world. Men were created to love, to protect, to sacrifice, to teach. When there's a war, yeah, women volunteer, women are in the military, that's awesome. But when there's a war, most of who goes are men. Why? Is it sexist? It's not sexist. It's what they were created for. I'll tell you what, I would rather take a bullet than give birth. Throwing that out there. Just saying. At least with a bullet, it's over quick, right? Now today, wanting to be a man is dubbed what, what people say toxic masculinity. Right? If I say that it is my job to protect my wife and my children, I'm a toxic male. If I say, you know, if I see an innocent person suffering, I feel obligated to step in and do something about that. Oh, well, that's toxic masculinity. You think that woman can't take care of herself? No. God made me stronger than most women. Don't get me wrong. I've seen some women that could whoop me. But God made me stronger made us as men stronger for a reason, so we can step in and do that. That's not toxic masculinity. Now, I don't think the whole macho garbage, uh, you know, I'm going to throw it out there, the Jersey Shore where you're wearing the, the, the A-frame tank top with the gold chains walking around seeing how many women you can have sex with, that's not a man. That's sad and pathetic and misguided. Or a man who hurts women or children or who picks on other men who were smaller than him that's not manly that's not godly that's not what god created us to do but like all things people love to take what god created us to do and twist it god created men to care for women and so some men have turned that into well then the woman is my property and i can do what i want no that's no no, just no. You know, and so I get it. And that if men acted like real men, they would see the, the, the boy child that did that to a woman and they would kick the snot out of them to teach them a lesson. I'm not promoting violence. But if I ever see somebody abusing a woman or a child, I'm capable of violence. Now, a big part of the problem in our culture today is a lack of people knowing and following Jesus Christ, right? That's straight up. A close second is the demasculinization. I had to make sure that was spelled right. The demasculinization of men telling little boys that they shouldn't grow up to be men. Telling little boys that they should grow up to be women. I mean, that's worse, but telling little boys that they have no right to step in and defend those who are weak. 
That's not what we were created for. God created men to be men. So according to that verse we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we are to pay attention to what's going on around us, to stand firm in our faith, to act like a man, and to be strong in the Lord, but all in love. And a man who's a man is never going to do all that other garbage. That, oh, if you're a real man, you'll, you know, you'll have sex with a bunch of women. No, you won't. If you're a real man, you'll marry one woman and you'll be faithful to her. Anywho, did I make my point? Be men. Oh, it was Tim Allen. I, I, I can't do that very well. Next, David tells... See, we're still in verse, the first four verses. Don't worry, the rest are going to go quick. Um, walk in God's way, is what he told him. He says, "You basically, you have a choice. I want you to walk in his ways. And we all have this choice. Do we want to walk in God's ways or do we want to walk in our own? Two Sundays ago, uh, when we were in Ephesians chapter 2, we talked about following the course of this world or, um, or Satan in Ephesians chapter 2, verse uh, somewhere around 4 or 5, but it's in the first 8, 7 verses. Um, and we get this idea, really, that we have a choice. We pick one. We walk in his way or we walk in in our way. If you go up to a place like Romans chapter 8 and read the first 11 verses, which we're not going to do right now, but you can, there we're told this is our choice. We walk according to the Spirit or we walk according to the flesh. We walk according to what God wants for us and what He's leading us into or we walk according to our own selfishness. Now, walking in His way is not always popular. I'm actually going to be a little bit surprised if Facebook doesn't put me in Facebook jail for some of the comments I just made. We'll see what happens. Um, I, I read your lips. That wasn't very nice. I've been put in Facebook jail before. Sorry. For everybody who doesn't know what's going on, my daughter made a comment and now I'm answering. Uh, <laughs> Right? And Jesus said, all who, des- no, not sorry, Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. When we walk his way, people aren't always going to understand it. People aren't always going to like it. People might make fun of us. People might attack us. But who cares? Who cares what everybody else is doing? We're here to follow him, which means walking in his ways. And as David goes on exhorting Solomon, to keep his statutes, commandments, judgments, and testimonies that are written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper. This is the law. This is the word of God. Now, as we talked about before, they did not have what we have. But they were still commanded to obey what they had, which is, you know, probably up through at least 1 Samuel, maybe 2 Samuel had been written down by the time David died. Whatever the case, obeying the word of God. And to this point, especially for Solomon, the word of God told him how to be a king. The word of God had instruction on how to judge correctly. The word of God gave them instruction on worship and sacrifice. The word of God gave them all kinds of instruction on how to deal with their enemies on, and so on and so forth. And so David says, do this and God will prosper you, which is what Psalm 1 tells us. If you want to, you can follow me over there because I'm not going to try to quote all six verses. 
um, because I would absolutely fail. But this is what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like chaff with which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. So what's the, you know, when we're taught to interpret scripture, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? But often we're taught to ask questions. Is there a command to keep? Is there a sin to avoid? Right? Things like that. Well, the command to keep here is to not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Or that's the sin to avoid. Right? Don't, don't listen to the ungodly. Don't go along with the sinners. Don't sit with the scornful. Right? There would be our sin to avoid. Our command to keep would be to delight in the law of the Lord would be to meditate on it day and night. And then there's a promise to take hold of. We have a sin to avoid. We have a command to keep. And then we have a promise to take hold of. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. Of course, then we have a warning. The ungodly aren't going to be like that. But you get the point. Now, Anybody want to guess who wrote Psalm 1? David wrote Psalm 1. Of course David wrote Psalm 1. Now everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people think David wrote all 150 psalms. He did not. There were other psalm writers. But he did write a lot of them. So God does not give us his word to keep us from enjoying life, but to protect us. We see the destructive effects of sin all around us, and at times we see it in our own lives, and God wants to protect us from this. And this is why he has given us his word. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I love that. You know, one of the things that I learned about when I was working on my counseling degree and I had to work on myself when I was in therapy um, was setting good boundaries, right? You just have to learn how to set boundaries. Sometimes it means you have to learn how to say no. Sometimes it means you have to pick and choose what you say yes to. Um, Sometimes you have to, uh, you know, shut your phone off so people can't call you or whatnot. So you have good boundaries. Well, that's what God has done for us in his word. In many ways, he has set good boundaries for us. And he does that not because he wants to see, you know, 
how many things he can keep us from doing or how many things he can keep us from enjoying. He's given us this world to enjoy. But it's to keep us from going over the edge. Keep us from getting burned. To keep us from falling and getting hurt. It's to protect us. Now, the promise here is that they would never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And unfortunately, David's descendants blew it. They blew it over and over and over again, which it's not going to take us long to see. First uh, 11 chapters of 1 Kings is going to be good. Solomon's in charge. When we get to chapter 12, the kingdom divides, and it's all downhill from there. Now, in the southern kingdom, there are moments of revival and restoration, but they are short-lived. Verse 5. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt, that was around his waist and on his sandals, that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see, you have with you Shammai, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. I love the loophole here, right? We're going to talk about all this in just a moment. But I love the loophole. He looks at Solomon and goes, Solomon, I told this guy I wouldn't kill him. But I didn't tell him you wouldn't kill him. (laughs) Technically, I'm not lying. Um, And we're going to see all this play out. Uh, You know, Joab, David's cousin, commander of David's army, quite a powerful guy, uh, but a murderer. Um, now, what I think is possible, and uh, I'm stealing this from Pastor Chuck because I actually didn't dawn on me when I was studying it, um, is that on one hand, maybe it seems like David is getting revenge. But it's possible that in telling Solomon to keep the commandments of God, that he was convicted by the Holy Spirit. I didn't com- keep the commandments of God. Joab was a murderer. I should have killed him, but I didn't. Shammai blasphemed. I should have killed him, but I didn't. So it's possible, right? I'm not saying that's the only or proper interpretation. I'm saying it's possible. Verse 10, because this is all going to play out, so we'll, we'll get to that. So David, verse 10, rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, And his kingdom was firmly established. So David dies. Now, it is believed that both Psalm 37 and Psalm 138 were composed by David near the time of his death. Uh, We're going to read Psalm 138 when we close tonight, but Psalm 37 is your homework. Now, I do like, and we've talked about it many times, but David was not a perfect man. Neither are we. But he was used by God mightily. Because even though he wasn't perfect, he was a man after God's own heart. And even when he made horrible mistakes, he always returned to the Lord and he sought the Lord and he worshiped the Lord and God used him. Verse 13. 
Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So he said, so she said, sorry, do you come peacefully? And he said, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. And he said, you know that the king, you know that the kingdom was mine. And all Israel had set their expectations on me. That is not true. That I should reign. Right? We just read or studied chapter 1 last week. Yeah, he tried to take the kingdom, but all Israel had not set their expectations on him. There were some, but this is clearly uh, an exaggeration at best. However, the kingdom has been turned over to my, and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know, I thought I was going to be king, but clearly God wanted Solomon to be king. Oh, good job, Adonijah. Way to, you know, accept where you're at. Verse 16, I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said, say it. And he said, please speak to the king Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite's wife. Bathsheba said, very well. I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went before King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, and the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother, so she sat at his right hand. Good job, Solomon. We're going to talk about that more in a second. And she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother's wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. For him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. Seems a little um, excessive at first reading. And real quick, I think it's awesome how Solomon honored his mother here. Exodus 20, verse 12 says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And, and I just think the way he did that is very cool. But you have to put yourself in their culture and in Solomon's place. Now, David had never slept with Abishag, so she was still a virgin. But in that culture, when a king succeeded another king, or when a king conquered another king, one of the things that the new king would do was take the previous king's harem, and he would sleep with those women to prove his authority and power. Remember, when Absalom rebelled against David, one of the first things he did was take 10 of his stepmothers, which is yeah, just weird, um, and have sex with them. Realistically, Solomon would get Abishag his wife. Now, notice what Solomon notices in verse 22. For him and Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. It is conjecture, but I think it's pretty good conjecture that Joab and Abiathar were in on this. That they went to Adonijah and they said, listen, there's another way you could take the kingdom. Trick your brother into giving you Abishag his wife. That was David's last wife before he died. And she'll be your first wife. 
And culturally speaking, it gives you a show of authority to take the throne. That's why Solomon said, absolutely not. Kill him. And he does. And now, he's going to deal with Abiathar and Joab. And the fact that he deals with Abiathar and Joab immediately following this instance makes a lot of sense that they were in on what was going on. So we pick up in verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth to your own fields. For you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. So Solomon exiles Abiathar, right? You're not coming back to Jerusalem. You're not coming back into the temple. You've lost your job. Get out. I should put you to death because treason was punishable by death. Just, I mean, it's punishable by death in our country. It was punishable by death in Israel as well. But he said, because you carried the ark and for a good portion of the time, you were very loyal to my father. I'm not going to kill you. But this did essentially end Eli's line That was Samuel's first prophecy back in 1 Samuel, if you remember. The Lord woke Samuel up and Eli said, you have to tell me what the Lord said. And he said, fine, you and your sons are going to die and your line is going to end. Well, here it is. Now we get to verse 28. Then the news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and he took hold of the horns of the altar. We talked about that last week because that's what Adonijah did. King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord, and he said, Thus says the king, Come out. And he, speaking of Joab, says, No, I will die here. Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab. And thus he answered me. And the king said, Do as he has said. Strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and my house, Uh, The house of my father, the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his own head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jither, commander of the army of Judah, though my father did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So I really like this. Right? Solomon has the right idea. Listening to his father, right? Joab brought blood on the house of my father. Now, if you remember back, when Saul attacked the Gileadites, Later on, David gave seven descendants of Saul back to the Gileadites so that they could kill them as recompense since Israel had made a covenant with Gilead. Was it Gilead? Sounds right. No, Gibeon. Gibeonites, not Gileadites. The Gibeonites. I take it back. It was the Gibeonites. It started with G and ended with Ite. Solomon would have known about this. David would have known about this. And they wanted to remove the guilt of bloodshed from their house. 
executing Joab was the way to do that. But I do love the scene. He goes in to the tabernacle, takes corner of the horn, takes hold of the horns, and Benny says, "Come on out." Joab's like, "Nope, you got to kill me in here." Well, Benny Aya doesn't want to kill somebody in the in the temple in the tabernacle, right? They didn't have the temple yet. So he goes back to the king and he says, well, he won't come out of the temple. Solomon says, fine. He wants you to kill him in there? Kill him in there. So Benaiah goes back and he kills him in there. Thus freeing David's house from the blood uh, of Joab's murders. So then he puts Benaiah in charge of the army and he puts Zadok, uh, makes him the high priest, essentially. Um, You know, the law provided no protection for the person who committed premeditated murder. For the person who committed manslaughter, there was protections in the law, the cities of refuge and whatnot, but not for premeditated murder. Verse 36. Now, y'all remember Shimei, right? When David was fleeing from Absalom, Shimei was walking along a hilltop and he was cursing the king. Now, even though it's not really recorded that Shimei cursed God, Um, cursing the king, the Lord's anointed, was considered blasphemy. That's why David refused to do it to Saul. Shammai didn't have a problem with it. Now, when they were on their way back, Shammai falls down before the king. Oh, please forgive me. I didn't know what I was doing. And David says, you know what? Fine. Well, on the way up, one of his guys wanted to kill Shammai. And David said, no, on the way back, the same guy wanted to kill Um. Uh, Shammai, I think it was Ab- uh, no, um, um, anyway, I don't remember. Uh, David said, no, I'm not going to kill you. And he tells Solomon, do what you think is best, but don't let him go down to his grave in peace. So the rest of this chapter tells us what happened. The king sent and called for Shammai and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, Know for certain that you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. Shammai said to the king, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shammai dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shammai ran away to Achish, the son of Maacah, king of Gath. And they told Shammai, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. Shammai arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shammai went and brought his slaves back from Gath. Solomon was told that Shammai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And the king sent and called for Shammai and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Don't you remember? Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, Moreover to Shammai, You know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the Lord, the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Joida, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So it's pretty straightforward. Solomon gave him a chance, right? David basically told him to execute Shammai. But Solomon gave him a chance, said, hey, you stay in Jerusalem, you'll be good. Three years go by, his slaves run away, he goes out for it. Comes back, Solomon finds out, brings him in. He goes, didn't, didn't we make a deal? Didn't you agree to this? Your blood be on your own head. Benaiah, kill him. And Benaiah does. Executes him on the spot. Uh, right, so now we're three years 
into Solomon's reign, at least, maybe a little longer, uh, but we're at least three years into Solomon's reign. Now next week, we will see Solomon ask God for wisdom, right? One of the most famous accounts from Solomon's life when he chose uh, between the two prostitutes and the live baby. But we'll get into that next week. But I want to close with the words of Psalm 138. Uh, it is believed, like I said, that Psalm, what did I say? Psalm 37 and Psalm 138. That's what I have notes for. Were written uh, near the end of David's life. Now picture a man on his deathbed writing these words. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Now that's a sermon in itself, but I'm not going to do that right now. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Doesn't that sound like something somebody would write right before they died? Right, God, I'm going to worship you. You're the best. You're the greatest. Everybody should worship you, Lord. Your glory, even though you're on high, you regard the lowly. Though I'm in trouble, you revive me. Your right hand will save me. You'll perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Please don't leave me. It kind of sounds like a prayer that somebody would pray right before they die. Even though I hope none of us are about to die, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you will perfect that which concerns us. That you have promised that you will never forsake the works of your hands. Lord, I just pray that we would learn from your word. Give us grace and understanding. Help us, Father, to walk in your ways. That when we have a choice between following your spirit and following our flesh, our flesh, that we would choose wisely and follow your spirit. When we have a choice between obeying your word or obeying ourselves or the culture around us, that we would choose to obey your word. And that you would give us the strength to do so. Pray that you would bless us the rest of this week, that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.